1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Yuan Yuan Ang to discuss her new book, China's Gilded Age The Paradox of Economic Boom and Vast Corruption, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. The literature on corruption suggests that corrupt economies will not succeed. How do we make sense of the durability and gigantic scale of China's economic expansion alongside the reports of rising and explosive corruption? How has China moved from an impoverished communist regime to a capitalist superpower rivaling the United States, despite a crisis of corruption that its own leadership describes as grave and shocking? Well, corruption comes in different forms. And this book unbundles different types of corruption, looking particularly at the quantity and quality of that corruption to offer a four-part explanation for this paradox. Dr. Eng focuses on the dominant type of corruption, access money, which stimulates growth but generates distortions and risks, the relationship between the profit-sharing model, where the rewards of leaders and bureaucrats are linked to economic performance and access money, the role of capacity-building reforms in curtailing corruption involving theft and speed money, and the checking of predatory corruption by regional competition, spurring development and deal-making. This book is important for Americanists and scholars of China. It demystifies the Chinese paradox of growth with corruption by unbundling the types of corruption and placing China in a comparative historical perspective, looking at a very unexpected parallel case The book asks us to fundamentally revise our beliefs about the relationship between corruption and capitalism. China is an outlier, but not in the ways that most analysts assume. Dr. Yuan Yuan Ang is an associate professor of political science at the University of Michigan. She works at the intersection of business, governance, and innovation to better understand how governments and organizations respond to deep uncertainty and complexity, novel problems, and which institutions are able to adapt. She considers China's Gilded Age to be a sequel to her award-winning book, How China Escaped the Poverty Trap, published by Cornell University Press in 2016. My colleague Andrea Bernardi interviewed Dr. Eng, and there's a link to their amazing conversation in the show notes. Dr. Eng translates her ideas to wider audiences in Foreign Affairs, Project Syndicate, and the South China Morning Post, and I'm delighted to welcome her to the New Books Network. Thank you very much for having me, Susan. I'm really delighted to talk with you. So before we talk about your thesis, let me ask you how you came to be intrigued with this particular political question regarding corruption and economic prosperity. Where did the ideas come from? How long have you been working on this?
1: China's Gilded Age is a sequel to my first book, so I can actually point you to page 46 of my first book, where I had a just a paragraph, uh, grappling with the question of what is the relationship between corruption and capitalism. And I had something that uh, might be called a hypothesis. So I introduced the term speed money, access money. And my rough idea was that corruption doesn't appear to disappear as capitalism advances. Instead, what really happens is that it changes in structure and form. And so I took that one paragraph and turned it into this book. And it's not just an account of China, even though, of course, China is the main case. But um, at the end of the book, as you can see, uh, I try to go broader and make a point that if you look even at the history of the West in a realistic way, um that story also applies. Corruption changed in structure and form, but it did not actually disappear. So
2: let's I mean this idea that China is an outlier is is out there. It's in mm-hmm. other um it's in other analysts. People sort of know that. But yeah. but say a little bit more, because we have such a broad audience for the podcast. What, what is so extraordinary about China? Why, why is this such a big question for not just um, China
1: scholars, but also for political scientists? Sure. Um, well, the big, the big driving puzzle is um, why has the Chinese economy boomed if it appears that China has a serious corruption problem? And we feel puzzled by this question, because conventionally, we know that poor countries are corrupt. So it seems very puzzling that you have this country uh, whose corruption has been described by his own by their own leader as shocking. And yet we know that this is one of the fastest growing economy in the world for forty years. Um, so, in the beginning of the book, I define, and i I wanted to be careful and define, Exactly, in what way China is an outlier. So, uh, at the outset, it's important to point out that China is not as exceptional in its coexistence of growth and corruption as many people think. Uh, You can think of other countries like Indonesia and Brazil, which have fallen into somewhat similar categories. But where China is truly exceptional, uh, if you look at one of the figures I show in the book, is that. We have never seen um, a, a country that has China's level of corruption and yet has produced this staggering amount of economic growth. And that, of course, is partly a function of the country's large size, but it's also a function of the extremely uh, high-powered incentive system that's driving this amount of entrepreneurial Growth, along with economic risk, so that is why um, this book is a sequel. Um, and you, you would have, if you want to know more about the growth part, um, that's covered in my first book. And in the second book, um, I focus more on um, how is the corruption related to the risky model of economic growth that we see in China.
2: So, your book depends on years of extensive field work in China and the cooperation of of many people in very sensitive positions to share with a researcher. Uh, For authors in the listening audience, I I want to recommend your gracious acknowledgments, particularly the way you talk about your expert respondents. This is a model for people writing books. and I recommend in particular that people look at how you thank people for their intellectual and editing support, institutions who gave you the money to support the work, and, and editors even noting a particular anonymous reviewer and, and a sort of how, how avoiding that, responding to that reviewer actually kept the book on track. Um, but to talk a little bit more about the interviews, so anyway, I, I want to recommend that to, to authors. Um, The interviews in the field were so central to this and your previous book. How difficult was it to do these interviews? And going forward, do you think you'll be back in China with the same kind of access?
1: Um, So when I do interviews, whether it's in China or any part of the world, um, my, my principles and attitude are the same, which is I don't go in looking for a problem. So even though the book is a book about corruption and capitalism, I always go in with an open mind. And um, my focus is on, I try to break conversations by simply asking people, um, what is the problem that keeps you up awake at night? You know, that is actually one of the best Mm -hmm. ice breaking questions uh, particularly with government officials and bureaucrats, and sometimes they actually appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk to someone about um, the problems they face. It's almost like a therapy session for them. And and so and so um, I listen, and so I I never directly ask questions about uh, you know corruption and so forth. A lot of the kind of scandals and stories you can actually find from investigative reports, and I've cited those. What I wanted to understand from these interviews is not whether um, the officials are give me, going to give me some scoop about any kind of illegal activities, but instead trying to see the world from their eyes and understand what are their goals, what are their objectives, what are their challenges, and also how do they rationalize their behavior, right? And so from that, those kinds of conversations with street-level bureaucrats one of the things that I discovered is that I had this chapter, if you remember, about how bureaucrats are compensated. And uh, normally in developing low-income countries, uh, the formal public salaries of bureaucrats are very low. And this is true in China as well. It's, it's set at uh, rates below subsistence. And so because of that, they have to make up for their income through a variety of other means, like collecting fees and fines, and you know doing other businesses on the side, uh, and then redistributing that income in the form of benefits and holidays and perks. So for a very long time, people have always dismissed these practices as corruption. And because I simply listened to them, you know, and tried to understand exactly how this practice worked, it occurred to me that actually these practices were highly institutionalized and packed to financial performance. And it was an mm-hmm. incentive structure. And so um, after I arrived at this insight from observation and listening, um, the next step as a political scientist is to ask, well, is this generalizable? Am I getting this insight because I happen to chance upon a few people um, who mention the same thing? Is this actually a generalizable logic that cuts across the institution? And so that's why you see in that particular chapter, it that motivated me to collect a data set on bureaucratic compensation and to demonstrate that, yes, the st- the statistical results would suggest that what the bureaucrats are saying are actually, Um, rooted in, in Hmm. reality, a generalizable reality. So that's my approach. That's the approach that I try to follow across all of my research, which is uh, using mixed methods and specifically um, respecting realities on the ground, uh, listening to stories on the ground, and then using those local knowledge to generate novel questions, novel hypotheses, and novel data sets.
2: No, and I think one of the great contributions to this, to the book, is 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 about how we think about corruption, how how and how we measure it, and I like it how you how you get at that. Um, so let me ask you for the people who haven't read the book, uh, and and I will say again, the book is written in such a way that somebody who is not a specialist in this field gets the kind of nuanced definitions that they need as scaffolding along the way. Um, and, but this is also a very, very sophisticated book for the people who are already engaged in these, um, in this kind of research. So how has corruption been defined and how is it that you measure it differently? What, because that seems to me very, very key to Mm. the brilliance
1: of this book. Mm. Thank you. Um, So corruption is normally defined as the abuse of public office for private gain. That is the standard definition. And then when you look at how this definition is translated into measurements, the most common one is the Corruption Perception Index, but there are other similar indices that are used by social scientists to run regressions, and these indices follow the same um, perception-based approach. Uh, across countries. And they have one commonality, which is they measure corruption on a single dimension. So it ranges from zero to 100, right? That's the first commonality. And the second commonality of all of these indices is that poor countries are very corrupt, whereas rich countries have virtually no corruption. And so this is a very entrenched um, perception And when we take that and put it into our regressions, we then use the metric to um, basically prove, further proof with rigorous evidence that indeed, you know, rich countries uh, have no corruption. So I wanted to challenge these conventional wisdoms in several ways. Uh, The first thing I wanted to point out is that. You cannot measure corruption on a single dimensional scale because corruption comes in different types. And you can think about this as A, B, C, D, right? Instead of one, two, three, four, you cannot take something that is qualitatively different and then mush it into a single score. It's it's actually conceptually flawed. So that's why you see in this book that I make this deliberate effort to say, hey, We're not going to think about 20 categories because it's too complicated. Let's just deal with four. Let's have four categories of corruption. And when you measure these four categories, all of a sudden you realize, oh, you know, actually every country has different combinations of corruption. And furthermore, it's not actually true that rich countries have no corruption at all. And then the second thing I wanted to do, as you can see in the way I conceptualize and measure corruption, is to emphasize that in rich countries, the corruption that exists is of a very sophisticated kind. So I call this access money. And I argue that in China, access money is still illegal and personal. So it comes in a form of massive bribes. But in rich countries like the US, what you find is that access money is prevalent, but it has become highly institutionalized and even legalized. Um, But because we don't acknowledge this reality, um, it's not actually included in the way we think about corruption, crony capitalism, and state capture. So I bring those activities into my measure of corruption. And that is a source of controversy for some people who cling on, who want to cling on to this um, belief that uh, rich countries are free of the problem of unequal political access. So I wanted to expose this fact and and show that, look, actually, it does exist. It's just that it's been excluded. Um, And then I introduce a historical evolutionary perspective to say that, um, the West arrived at this particular structure of corruption over many centuries, um, and China is a relative newcomer on this path. It still hasn't reached the type of institutionalized access money that we see in advanced market economies. And so those are the two central revisions I wanted to bring into the study of corruption.
2: No, and I, I loved how in the book you clarify that the the way we're defining corruption allows us to sort these countries into uh, places that we, we don't necessarily have evidence to sort them into, but accept mm. the framework that we're hoping to have of imagining uh, first world, second world, developed uh, developing, all of these um, are, are playing out in the kind of methods that we're using. I loved that uh, part of the book. So you have four varieties of corruption that you describe, and, and then you have a four-part explanation of the paradox of corruption. Four is an important number in the book. Yeah. So I very, very briefly have you um, explain petty theft, grand theft, speed theft, and access money Uh, You've already mentioned access money a little bit, just because speed theft and access money play so much of a role in the explanation for the paradox of corruption. So if you wouldn't mind, just to bring everybody up to speed. Of
1: course. Um, So a summary of the framework, uh, I focus on two dimensions. The first is whether the corruption involves elites or non-elites, such as the president and his family versus street-level police officers. And then the second dimension is whether the corruption involves exchange or theft. So embezzlement is corruption with theft, right? You just take, but you give nothing in return. Whereas transactional corruption like bribery or influence paddling or lobbying, all of these are transactional forms of um, activities. So the intersection of these two dimensions then generate four distinct categories of corruption. So the first one is what I call petty theft. An example is extortion. This is something you find very commonly in predatory low-income states where street-level bureaucrats sometimes just go right up to people and extort money from you. And then the second variety is grand theft. And a good example is embezzlement, siphoning billions of dollars out of public accounts into private Swiss bank accounts. Both of these types of corruption with theft are directly and unambiguously harmful to growth because they impede economic activities, drain public and private wealth, absolutely no benefit to anyone in society except the person who steals. And then the third variety is what I call speed money. Speed money is not a term that I coined. It's very common in political science and it refers to paying petty bribes to low-level officials to overcome excessive rate tape. Now, this is also the kind of corruption that is emphasized in the earlier literature by Huntington and Leff when they try to make a case that corruption can be beneficial in the sense that it allows people to um, pay small bribes to overcome rate tape. So that has been very much covered um, in, in the literature. Um, the, the new category that I introduce and particularly emphasize is access money. So, access money are lavish perks paid to powerful officials, not just because you're trying to overcome rate tape or get your license faster, but because you're trying to buy exclusive, lucrative deals. Right? So, um, if you think about speed money as a tax, So speed money, um, in in my view, I call it, I I refer to it as painkillers. It does not actually help commercial activities. At best, it just helps you to get over annoyances. But excess money, on the other hand, is actually not a tax on business. It's an investment that some capitalists are more than happy to pay Because they know that that investment in access money is going to yield them larger returns. So now that we have unbundled corruption into four types, I emphasize that all of them are harmful, but they harm in different ways. So uh, petty theft and grand theft, that's obviously toxic drugs. Speed money, it's like painkillers. It only helps you get over annoyances. But access money is the most interesting one, and I call it the steroids of capitalism. And I chose this analogy carefully because steroids is known as growth-enhancing drugs, but they come with serious side effects. So if you look at um, America in the 19th century and the five financial crises that it had, the Asian financial crisis, the 2008 financial crisis, and the economic risk that China faces today, It has a lot to do with the existence of access money. Uh, This type of corruption that spurs commercial activities encourages capitalists to take on a lot of entrepreneurial but also risk-taking ventures um, that all builds up into rapid GDP growth along with systemic uh, risk that's built into the system. And so the harm of excess money, unlike the other kinds of corruption, only blows up in the event of a crisis. This episode
0: is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Um, I found the drug analogies so remarkably helpful. It allowed me to nail down your four categories and track them throughout the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, whatever thought you put into them was, was well-received to this reader because it it really did allow me to lock in the categories and understand not only their effects but their their side effects as well. Um, and the the drug analogy was terrific. So this is a complicated book and I hate to, you know, make any book uh, to to try to, to try to get to the essence in such a short period of time, but I want to try to walk us through this four-part explanation um, that you give. So, you know, you've already established that not all forms of corruption are equally bad for the economy. They don't cause the same kinds of harm. So, and that China, that the issue, the the, the discovery that you have, that it's access money that's increasing the growth is, is sort of the first step. And I think you've you've said that it has these distortions and risks. I don't know if you want to say a little bit more about the distortions and risks before we go on to your second step, which really involves the the profit sharing.
1: Absolutely. Um, I would like to take the opportunity to make a few clarifications. So one of the ways in which my argument has been misrepresented is that people would summarize it as Ang is saying corruption is good or corruption is good for growth. Wait, we'll really? <laughs> yeah, it happens very <laughs> okay. frequently. Okay, that's yeah. it. Okay,
2: that's and, uh, that is yeah. not that is not in the book. And in fact, it good. really seems it seems very much that your your starting point is that corruption is a problem. Or at least this was my takeaway from the book, and I'm just one good. reader, but the idea is that is it we all understand that corruption isn't necessarily a good thing but it exists and in understanding it in its in its specificity and in the the whole idea of unbundling i found to be actually the very much the opposite of saying corruption is good but trying to distinguish the
1: different effects it has
2: anyway okay i obviously that's too bad that that's the misunderstanding
1: but I'm so glad you got it, right? So I'm very, very happy about that. Um, but I, I I think the reason that some people um, oversimplify it as corruption is good for growth is that I think the moment we see the word growth and, and hear about something being growth-enhancing, that just sucks away Attention, You know, this just mm. takes up all of the attention on the okay. stage. And, and despite the fact that I repeatedly said throughout the whole book and demonstrated that I'm saying this is like steroids and there are these side effects and these side effects are very serious. I think that part is just kind of uh, diluted uh, in some people's minds. I had this one experience where I did this interview and I said the same thing it's like steroids it's growth enhancing has side effects and then during the editing process um, the 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 outlet only highlighted the growth enhancing part they blew it up you know gave it a bright color and and, and put the picture of a train right beside it and so immediately you see yeah. uh, anxious <laughs> Corruption no, is I, good I, for I, growth. No, <laughs> no. The word
2: "steroids" for me, I, again, look. I, when I do when I do books that that have a quantitative side, look. Like I'm a political theorist and I study law, so sometimes that's kind of you know it's intimidating. I, I think the word "steroid" was so helpful because we all know that steroids have this remarkable effect. I mean, sometimes people take steroids to get over all sorts of terrible things. But we all know that they're not something that you can take regularly. And I know, not have really terrible side effects. So it's such a good again, for me, it really it really worked. So um,
1: great. great. I'm, I'm I'm glad it works for you. and I so want to clarify that for everyone uh, okay. that that it's I'm actually talking about corruption, access money having two sides, right? Okay. It can be growth enhancing but terribly distorting at the same time. Um, and that the latter part cannot be ignored. It's really central to the story of China's Gilded Age and America's Gilded Age. And then the second clarification I wanted to make is that um, I'm not saying that access, the existence of excess money by itself would cause growth. And again, I know it's uh, convenient to summarize it in this way. But um, the better way to understand it is you can't say that corruption causes growth. That would be like saying that, you know, petroleum causes motion, but it doesn't. You have to put the petroleum into a car, drive the car in order to cause motion. So what I'm saying is that this particular form of corruption access money is the fuel for a politi- for a particular political economy that I call profit sharing. It provides the rewards for communist officials to enthusiastically promote growth and provides the rewards for politically connected capitalists to take on risky ventures. So you can think of it as a fuel leading to the outcome of this risky, imbalanced model of growth rather than simply saying, ah, excess money causes growth. That would not be um, an accurate way to understand the argument.
2: So once, um, what, one of the other elements in the second step has to do with the relationship between, uh, the leaders and the bureaucrats who are, uh, are, are part of this, uh, of the, uh, part of the system and the access money. Can, can you take us through, through that in a sort of short way of what that relationship is between the profit sharing model and access money?
1: Sure. So the concept of profit sharing is quite simply a kind of organizational system where employees take a cut of profits earned. And so you find that in corporations, and it's meant to be an incentive system for people to perform. Um, What is um, unusual about the Chinese bureaucracy is that it actually practices profit sharing. Now, that's surprising because in public administration, or at least the public administrations of first world economies, um, bureaucrats are just paid um, a uniform, standardized wage that is not connected with the outputs, right? Because the public sector incentive functions very differently from the private sector. In the public sector, we expect bureaucrats to be serving out of uh, a sense of public service and and commitment. And we pay them enough. The point is that we pay them enough so that they do not need to bribe or steal to keep themselves alive. So what's unique in the Chinese political system is that it actually practices profit sharing at both the elite and non-elite levels. And this is central because basically what it does is that it aligns the personal incentives of the bureaucrat's with this collective outcome of economic growth. And lacking this condition, you can imagine what would happen is that a bureaucrat would rather steal. So they would rather engage in petty theft and grand theft than to engage in institutionalized forms of transactional corruption. So it is profit sharing is not meant to eradicate corruption. Instead, you can think of it as one a high-powered incentive scheme, and two, as a way of channeling corruption from the types that are overtly and unambiguously harmful into this excess money variety that is transactional, it is risky, but at least it channels the efforts of bureaucrats into growth related activities, right? So that's what profit sharing means. So let me continue. So, profit sharing in China operates at two different levels elites and non elites. And what I show in one chapter is that at the level of elites, profit sharing operates in the sense that if you are a mayor in China, your career prospects are linked to the economic outcome. But not only that, your reputation, your personal power, and the rents that you can collect. These are all linked to your ability to promote the economy, right? That's at the elite level. And then at the non-elite level, among the tens of millions of rank and file bureaucrats in China, they also operate on a profit-sharing system. And that is not about the massive bribes that they could collect, which they cannot because they do not have the power of mayors, but instead it's about the in. It's about the supplemental compensation that they receive, the bonuses, the overtime pay, and the perks, normally all dismissed as corruption. But I show that in fact, these supplemental compensation are also packed to the economic performance of their locality and of the particular agency in which they work. So it's profit sharing from the elite to the lowest levels all of which leads to a bureaucracy that is unusually focused on the bottom line, um, which is very paradoxical considering that China is run by a communist party. Um, but that's part of the reason why you find this growth engine in China. Now, again, the qualifier here is the word growth is glamorous and fantastic, but there are, as i emphasize many risks and distortions that comes with a government that is so focused singularly on economic growth.
2: The government's also been focused on curtailing corruption, particularly theft and speed money. So what, what, what role has that kind of reform played in, in, uh, in the system?
1: It has played a big role. And again, the big story in China's political economy and indeed in any political economy is a story of how corruption is channeled from one form to another. And so if you look at America in the 19th century, um, it was in the Gilded Age it also had plenty of corruption. It had petty bribery was rampant, embezzlement was rampant, and so what really happened throughout the course of American development is not that all corruption was eradicated, but it was channeled um, to the category of excess money, and quite exceptionally in America, excess money is legalized. Right, so China is going undergoing a similar process. And I show that beginning in the 2000s, the central government really put in um, determined efforts to eradicate petty bribery and embezzlement. So things that are called corruption with theft. And it still exists in China. Um, China is still a developing country. I'm not saying that these types of corruption do not exist. They do. But when you compare these types of corruption like petty bribery to China in the 1990s or to a country like Nigeria, you can see that they have fallen visibly over time. So when the President Xi Jinping says, our country has a has a crisis in corruption, he's not talking about petty bribery. He's not about talking about public officials lawlessly stealing funds. He's specifically talking about high-level access money type of corruption.
2: And how does regional competition also play into your argument? That that's the sort of fourth part, right? Is the is is how how this corruption is is checked by regional competition.
1: Right. Corruption uh, I mean com- let me let me say that again. Indeed, ca- competition has always been a central feature of China's decentralized Mode of state-led development. And competition has not only pushed local officials to compete with one another to attract growth and investment, competition also leads them to compete to offer more attractive uh, packages and preferential policies uh, to clients in order to attract people who are willing to work with them. So one of the common terms that you'll find in China is the term preferential policies, which means that these are special privileges like tax breaks or regulatory exemptions that powerful officials are able to give out to certain investors And they were very common before the anti-corruption campaign. And indeed, they were not even considered a bad word. And you can speak openly about preferential policies. But interestingly, after the anti-corruption campaign, it has now become a sensitive uh, term. But the point is that this intense and constant competition among the provinces, the cities, and counties leads to a model of development in China where you have competitive state-led growth along with competitive corruption. So
2: you do this remarkable historical comparison. What, what does it tell us about uh, China going forward, or does it tell us anything about China going forward?
1: Well, I'm so um, delighted to hear your reaction, which is exactly what I had hoped to achieve with that implicit uh, comparison. Um, one of the things that I've always uh, wished to a- achieve as a as as a political scientist and a comparativist is, is to break down this stereotype of of China as exceptional, and I think that sometimes that discussion even has orientalist flavors to it you know, oh china that yes. country that is so weird you know and and they and they speak this language that i don't understand and on all these weird things and i really wanted to break down those orientalist uh, stereotypes by by highlighting the surprising parallels between contemporary china and america in the 19th century so when i do Uh, book talks, for example, I would actually begin with a story about America's Gilded Age. Uh, But, you know, everyone would think I'm talking about China. And then, oh, there's so much corruption. Oh, my gosh, you know, that that confirms people's uh, bias that China is indeed so corrupt. And then finally, the punchline is, oh, but that's America. (laughs) And then you can see the the audience, you know, in shock, like other you can actually see their faces of shock when I when I delivered the punchline. And, and that was exactly the effect that, that I wanted to deliver. Um, and the question is, uh, what can we learn? I think there's so much that we can learn. One of the questions that I ask myself is, why do we happen to see these parallels between contemporary China and America's Gilded Age? And I think it's not accidental. Um, I think it's because they share some very fundamental historical circumstances, one of which is that both were periods that were rebuilding themselves after total devastation. So in America, it was after the Civil War, and in China, it was after three decades of Mao. Uh, Both were also large emerging markets. So it was basically a time where... um, the previous status quo and establishment has been disrupted and turned upside down. And all of a sudden you have a blank slate. And on this blank slate, you know, you have this opportunity for people to really kind of make a name and a fortune for themselves that they otherwise wouldn't in a stable society. So that's why in the Gilded Age, you always see the self-made um, bullionaires. And, and one of my favorite phrases comes from one of the robber barons in, in the United States. I forgot his name, but his quote was fishing in troubled waters. Right? So this was a period where if you know how to fish in troubled waters, you would make a right. great fortune for yourself that would last you many generations. So um, if you think about these fundamental conditions, I think They actually are common in America's Gilded Age and in contemporary China. And so then it helps us to understand in this process of creating a modern market economy, what were some of the commonalities? And I would say the key commonality is, again, this channeling of corruption away from corruption with theft, which is unambiguously harmful, toward access money. And the American path is a lot more advanced, and that's why China can learn something from a history. Uh, the American path then went on to the progressive era and then went further on to what we see today where you have um you have unequal political access, but that is already highly institutionalized and legalized to the point where it's invisible or, or that we don't think about it. But if you look more deeply, uh, turn over the rocks, you'll find that that system is actually very central to the problems of populism that we experience today, right? The inequality, um, the anger that regular people feel about the 2008 financial crisis where Wall Street basically got away and Main Street had to pay. All of these has to do with the centuries of evolution toward a form of transactional relationship that has become so sophisticated that we don't notice it so those are the those are the things that we can learn from America's history as China sort of looks forward and i said it's it's actually just a newcomer on this evolutionary path
2: no i found the comparison Phenomenal! It was just—it's—it's—and it's funny because sometimes people's titles uh, pack more power than they appear when you first open the book, and yours is one of them. the The thesis is embedded in there, but that word "gilded" is already signaling to the reader that the comparison between the United States and China is going to be made, and I think that you you make it so effectively. Um, I want to say a couple of things about the conclusion before I ask you about what your next project is, um, again, for writers, uh, you use a remarkable approach in the conclusion to not just restate what you've already proved, which is always helpful and useful. Um, but you also le- have this four remaining questions. Um, I reviewed, uh, uh, interviewed Kasmuda as Book on the far right. He had a great. We had a great conversation a couple of weeks ago. He uses something very, very similar in his conclusion, and I, I have to say, I'm finding it a remarkably helpful, um, a way to conclude a book. And, and you ask these four questions, and you and you respond to them, and and what you it allows for the reader is to see the implications of the work that has just been done. So I, I, I can't recommend the book enough to for all political scientists because this is really important about how we think about corruption generally um, and how we define corruption and I think the effect that it will have on on work in all countries and as an increasing way of understanding um, China. So I'll read the four questions and then you know you this book was published in 2020 and I guess I'll I'll mm. ask you if any of your if anything has changed um, in, in what <laughs> you've seen in the last year, yeah, you would answer any any of them any of them differently. Um, but the questions that you pose uh, are: popular accounts paint a conflicting picture of China, either as a Confucian style meritocracy or a festering regime that will soon crumble. crumble. Who's right? Uh, you also ask, you know, how has authoritarian capitalism shaped Chinese corruption? Will corruption in China lead to regime collapse? And will Xi's anti-corruption campaigns smother growth. So I'm wondering if any of your question answers have changed um, since you put the book to the publisher.
1: Oh, that's such a interesting question to ask about the questions. Um, Well, I think one of the big um, shocks in the, in 2020, which uh, we all experience is the pandemic and it has definitely both, um, ruptured um, geopolitics as well as uh, deeply affected Chinese politics and economy. Um, so I think on the question of whether corruption will lead to regime collapse, um, what I would further emphasize is that corruption is an important factor in elite politics in China, but it's not the only one. And what we see, I think, during 2020 is that you could have some exogenous shocks that come out from nowhere that could you know drastically change Mm. the path um so far we have seen china been very successful at controlling the virus and in other publications i've written about this um and i think we are Entering into a turbulent transition in terms of Chinese politics, um, because this is only 2021, where China on the one hand feels extremely confident after having battled the virus, but on the other hand, extremely fragile as well. Because it felt so much pressure, um, both domestically and internationally in 2020, and corruption is actually one on top of so many other mounting problems that they face.
2: Hmm. No, that's really interesting. Um, Well,
1: what's your next project? (laughs) My next project. So I am excited to move on to um, a series of new working papers about Chinese technology and innovation. And I find this literature... And this topic, just really fascinating, Um, not only because it's supremely important because we know the U.S. and China are in a technological competition, um, but also it it, uh, helps me to think about how we need to deeply rethink all previous development models, because in the past, development came from manufacturing, from the transition from agriculture to industrialization. And if you look at development today, that the games, the rules of the games have changed. Um, The new, um, the nature of this new competition is how do you transition from a manufacturing economy into a high tech and innovative economy? So that poses just deep challenges in terms of what should be the role of government, what policies should you make? You know, if you use the same targets uh, and incentives, does it still work? So I think it opens up a whole range of really fascinating questions to explore.
2: Well, I'm so appreciative of the book. Uh, the front, the front cover says that this is a path-breaking study that will change how we think about the link between corruption and growth. And sometimes that's an overstatement, but it isn't. Um, this is this is a terrific book, beautifully written. And, and compact too. I think the book could have been three times as long, but it's not because of how you organized how you organized it. Really, um, how you scaffolded is is brilliant. And thanks so much for for coming here to discuss it. The the book is Dr. Eun Yun's... Uh, God, this is ridiculous. I'm having such a bad day on this. Okay. Uh, the book we've been discussing is Dr. Yun Yun Ang's China's Gilded Age, The Paradox of Economic Boom and Vast Corruption, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you, Suzanne. It was a real pleasure to speak with you.